Welcome to Love Love Tennis, where tennis talk starts. I'm Ruth Dobson Torres, host of the Love Love Tennis podcast. The goal of this episode and all future episodes is to promote the sport of tennis by sharing diverse and interesting opinions and voices about all things happening in the tennis world today. So let's get started. Welcome to the Love Love Tennis podcast. I am excited about our guest today. Let me tell you a little bit about her. First of all, she's originally from Smithfield, North Carolina. She is a licensed clinical social worker who has maintained a private psychotherapy supervision and consultation practice in person and online for 21 plus years now. She's licensed in both North Carolina and Georgia. She is trained in mindfully based stress reduction and life force yoga and has taught at leading meditation centers nationally and internationally. She has written, practiced, and spoken extensively on the use of mindfulness and meditation for stress management, anxiety, and depression. These techniques can provide focus, depth, and clarity for CEOs, athletes, and countless other professionals. She is a lifelong amateur tennis player who is reconnecting with tennis at midlife. And you can learn more about her and her practice by contacting her at www.alicewellens.com. First off, welcome Alice Wellens to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ruth. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we are so excited that you're our Love, Love Tennis podcast uh, guest today. And to start off uh, the discussion, uh, we understand that you're a native of Smithfield, North Carolina, which actually happens to be my hometown as well. And (laughs) I want to let our listeners know that we actually grew up as across the street neighbors years ago and that our moms played tennis together when we were young. That's exactly right. Um, As a matter of fact, I can look out my window now, Ruth, and almost see uh, the house you grew up in and the house I grew up in. That's right. You are are in Smithfield. Wonderful. And my mom was just here um, to say hello, and she said, I said, was Pansy a good tennis player? And she said, Pansy could hit that ball hard. (laughs) That is fantastic. That is fantastic. Yes, my mom, her name is Pansy. I'm sure she's going to be happy to hear herself being referenced today and your mother, Clara, um, who is wonderful. I know she could hit the ball hard too. So actually, that's how I was going to start this off was by asking, what's one tennis memory that stands out in your mind when you recall your mom's tennis years in the late 70s and early to mid 80s? And what about you? How did you start playing tennis? You know, I was trying to remember that, um, how I started playing. What, what stands out to me is not so much one memory but a period of time that you just referenced, the late 70s and the 80s, of of our moms and my mom um, just playing tennis. And they wore white, and they had the wooden rackets. Do you remember with the with the frame over them that tightened? And I can I can smell that racket. Yes. Um, Yes. And I can smell the tape that they would use. And they played it at one place in town. And I can like just see them and their friendships and their connections and the fun they had. And I can see the little cooler that they would take out there for their water. 
Um, and I can just hear all their laughter. Oh, and yes. That's what stays with me so much is how much fun they had through the game of tennis. Absolutely. The friendships and the fun. And I remember tab colas and nabs. Uh, tab and nabs. <laughs> And you you did play, I, I recall, and uh, I believe you you played into uh, high school, did you not? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I played. Um, I played tennis. They taught me to play, and I went to tennis camps. I went to one at Davidson, and you know um, summer camps around here. And then I went to summer camp in Western North Carolina, and I played there. And then eventually was a tennis instructor there, and played in high school, um, junior varsity and varsity tennis. And I have to say that the same things, those same um, values really wove through that was that it was about having fun and enjoying the relationships and the friendships with the people. Now, I like to hit the ball hard, too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we need to. When me you're too. in high school, you can really hit it hard and it's fun and um so anyway, those were really fun times. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I want to ask you, uh, when did you decide that you would pursue a career around psychotherapy? Gosh, Ruth, this is such a great question. And I think we're, I think we might be finding a theme today around um, relationships. I think there's something, I went to therapy when I was 16. I was kind of a wild, went through a wild period of time in my adolescence and went to therapy and I just mm-hmm. remember sitting in that room with this other person and having having like these real conversations and really talking about things that were important you know to a 16 year old at that time but it was it was that somebody was really listening and present and they saw me as a valuable person and I saw myself as a valuable person and then the introspection that came. And I remember thinking, this is something you get to do for a living. <laughs> and so I kind of figured out how you did that. And I have, I still have in my journal in there, I went home and I wrote out my plan to graduate high school go to college, two years of graduate school, pursue your license, and then start a private practice. That's fantastic. It's great to hear that you found out what you wanted to do so young. You know, that's a blessing. I realize how lucky that is. Yes, because so many others, I think, uh, you know, some people find themselves in, in their path, maybe into their 40s, actually. I've, I've, I've heard of that happening. But I, I love to hear whenever people find that so soon in life. Yeah. Um, because then I think you're actually living out your your destiny, you know, what, you, what you're meant to be um, doing. So I think that's great. And I wanted to ask um, about your practice um, now um, that you, I know you're licensed and you have clients in both North Carolina and Georgia. Uh, what are your focus areas and what type of clients do you counsel? Um, are you working with um, individuals exclusively, couples or both or... Tell us a little bit more. Yeah. So I um, practiced in person in the Virginia Highlands area of Atlanta from 1999 to to 2020 and just had a wonderful, rich, meaningful two decades there. Um, Lived in a wonderful community, had just 
bright, fun colleagues. And again, it's that theme of the relationships. You know, I think that we got that at such a young age, how important that is and how meaningful that is. And saw that on the tennis courts with our mothers and, and the social life and how that's always been the most important thing to me. So anyway, um, I had always planned to move back home mm-hmm. and was, was moving back home. And then COVID hit almost the, almost the day I moved. <laughs> so I, I moved, my practice went online and I've been practicing online and I'm going to kind of wait and see what happens after COVID around starting a practice in North Carolina. Um, I see couples and individuals. I keep it about 80% individual, 20% couples, you know, here around in there. And it's that traditional psychotherapy that you kind of see on TV. You know, you come in, they sit down, what's bringing you in? And and what's underneath that question is really like, what's going on? Where does it hurt? You know, Mm -hmm. and then we talk about everything from mindfulness to how to, to psychoeducation, to spirituality, to history to the meaning of life. It's just a, a really rich experience. That's fantastic to hear. I Now, related to the individuals that you work with, I understand that you actually, because of your experience and the years that you've practiced, that you actually now work with other therapists and you do, you're sort of like training the trainers, so to speak. Um, and I understand that some of your work involves training trauma therapists in new modalities and approaches to psychotherapy, one of which is the incorporation of life force yoga techniques into the practice of of trauma therapists. So you can help them by if they incorporate those life force yoga techniques to go deeper with their clients who've suffered traumas and they can um, help their clients heal uh, from traumas. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate on some of that work, um, because I find that so interesting. And and tell us more about your training in life force yoga. You know, how prevalent is the incorporation of that into trauma therapist practices or other psychotherapist practices? And and do you think this is a trend? Yeah. So um, that's like my favorite. That's the sweet spot of, (laughs) of, of how I kind of like to, to practice these days. Um, you, you, uh, I see a lot of therapists in my practice. I'd say almost half of my practice are other therapists, mental health professionals, um, who for many different reasons are coming in to do their own work. One is therapists really should be in and out of therapy throughout their career. It's just really helpful from everything from remembering what it's like to be a client sitting in the waiting room, um, you know, all the way to there are periods of time when we're, we have our own stuff that happens to us. And if we don't have a place to deal with it, um, it'll interfere with our ability to really be present with our clients. Um, so there's that all the way to helping therapists who maybe want to learn a little bit more of what's beyond talking. Okay. Um, you can probably feel that on the tennis court. Like you can learn a lot about how to hit the ball, how to hold your racket, um, how to keep score, you know, how to set up the games and play matches. But at some point you realize there's, there's something deeper that has got to be part of this game. Right. You know? And where does that come from? And how do you, how do you start to, call, uh, I like to say, excavate and illuminate that. Mm. Okay. Um, 
So life force yoga, meditation, any of those um, Eastern practices are really great ways to, to go from our prefrontal cortex, which is in our language centers of our brain, which is where we think and we problem solve and we sort of ponder um, to into the body, which is really mm-hmm. where we hold our stories. You know, you can't think your way to not be depressed. You can't think your way to not be anxious or stressed. Um, you have to use the body. So related to anxiety, you know, can you help, can you help us and sort of define, you know, what that is compared to trauma and then um, give us, you know, a little bit of an idea of whether these yoga techniques and these Eastern techniques can, can address anxiety as well as, as helping uh, victims of trauma. So anxiety is stored in your midbrain and that is about a 200 million year old part of our brain system. And it's basically responsible for scanning the environment and looking for safety and danger. It's part of the uh, evolutionary survival of the species. It's why we're still here. Our ancestors scanned the Serengeti to look for the mountain lion to come over and kill us. It was literally a life and death um, technique. Fast forward to modern day, we don't need to be in that level of vigilance. We're not in a life or death situation. Some people's brains haven't caught up to that yet. It's just their wiring. Some people's brains have had something happen to them, mm-hmm. maybe a trauma or just maybe incidents that cause them to need to be a little more vigilant. And so they're kind of scanning the environment all the time. They're hyper vigilant, hyper aroused, lots of thoughts. And, um, what, where life force yoga comes in, that is movement, sound, and breath. And when your body is in the sympathetic nervous state, which is fight or flight or freeze or faint, mm, okay. and that is when it's in that hyper aroused state. Okay. And we, and we contract up our blood flows to our organs. We might get a big rush of adrenaline or, or, cortisol and we start to tunnel vision. I'm sure everybody's had a moment like that in their life and on the tennis court, you know, everything just freezes up. It's our body doing what it's designed to do It's reading something dangerous. But the truth of the matter is, is we're not literally under danger. So where these techniques come in is to move our central nervous system from that sympathetic state to the parasympathetic state. Tend and befriend, rest and digest. Okay. The way we do that is to breathe, to move, and to make sound. Okay. Because if you're breathing, then you're, if you're, when you're under attack, you're either holding your breath or you're breathing shallowly, which immediately sends a signal to your central nervous system, danger. When you take that first deep breath, you're sending that signal to your central nervous system. We're not in, we're not in danger because I'm, I'm breathing freely. That's so interesting. So that's where the breath comes in. And I, I know that you um, have provided um, our Love Love Tennis audience uh, in the past on our website uh, with a, a pro tip in the, in the pro tip section of the site with some, some guidance on how on the court 
through breath that that someone could relax um, if they're in an anxious moment on the court. And so I wanted to um, ask you a, a follow up to that. I, 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 if I recall, you had given three tips uh, to players if they were um, facing something, a really stressful situation, they were anxious and um, trying to help them get to more mindfulness there on the court. And you had said, I think, take a breath. Yes. And uh, (laughs) number two, you had said, uh, add a light smile to the lips to signal to your uh, central nervous system that everything's going to be okay. And then third, and I remember you said, lightly shake it off by literally bouncing around the court. And I actually tried that in a match and I did feel like it helped me. And I just wanted to know that, uh, that those three tips, that was for anxious moments that someone a player could confront or might have to confront during a match. But I was wondering if you might have any more advice along that line um, for players uh, when they're experiencing anxiety prior to an important match. Because that I have some friends and I know colleagues that have told me before matches, they're just so keyed up, so nervous, sometimes even up to the morning. You know, if, if the match is a morning match, you know, they don't sleep they say, and they just get really nervous. So I was wondering about anxiety that's pre-match, if you had any tips for that. And some of the same things can apply. The bouncing really helps because when you tell yourself, stop, you know, forget it, move on. You're telling yourself that from your prefrontal cortex, not where the anxiety is. And your body is like, I'm not listening to that. You contract even more. Like you can't tell yourself to relax. So the shaking it off can really help. And, and I really encourage people to do it two or three times a day for four to six minutes. Okay. And so interesting, because you said that trauma, you know, lives in this place in the body. So it's sounding like anxiety, actually, it's within you. And it's not, it's not necessarily enough to tell yourself, shake it off. You've literally, um, you're suggesting that people actually physically move. And, and do shake it, shake okay. it off. And it's sort of like having a dance, have, have your own dance party and you shake it off. And the reason why we say four to six minutes is because if you just do it for a couple of minutes, your body is, is very exquisitely designed. It's smarter than that. So it's just going to hold on till you finish your little fun mm-hmm. thing and move on. But if you keep on past that point of wanting to stop, the body eventually is going to let go. And then we add sound to it. So you're bouncing, you know, and you can shake off your arm, shake off each leg. You can take your hand and you can literally brush energy off. Oh, okay. If you're carrying something on your shoulders, if you're carrying something on your mind or on your heart, you can literally just brush that off while you're bouncing. Mm-hmm. And then you can add that breath in, that ah. <sighs> Just lots of lots of breath. And then you can pair it with the intention of I am removing what is not serving. I am your version. I am removing what is not serving. And so and so again, it's the breath and the movement. And then you're saying this is a is this like a mantra? Is this is that what you would call it? Having something that is saying I am releasing what's not working. And you don't have to know what it is. Don't don't let the mind try to grab hold of it. Just okay. just you trust that my body knows exactly what to do. 
Okay. And, and you can, that can be your mantra. My body knows exactly what to do. Okay. And, and you said how many times I want to get that clear for the listeners, because I know one of our other pro tip contributors, she's a mental uh, training coach, uh, Amy Oliphant. And she had said, uh, she was suggesting visualization, you know, before a match that that could be helpful, but she was really uh, adamant and in emphasizing that you can't just do it once before a match. So I wanted you, you to repeat your suggestion for, you know, to combat pre-match anxiety, to do this breathing movement uh, mantra approach, the time, the, the cadence of, of that. I, I think it's really great to do it two to three times a day for four to six minutes. Okay. That way, it's like, it's like practicing free throws or practicing serves. You don't wait for, you know, five, three in the third set to fire up your best serve. You want to have practiced that serve a hundred thousand times. Okay. And, and so it's just available to you right then and there. Okay. And so doing this, what you think will help combat the pre-match anxiety, and it will probably, I'm imagining, also help you in those moments on court as well. That's right. So you're not trying to, you're not trying to um, reach right there in the clutch. As soon as you kind of shake it off, or maybe you have developed some of your own mantras or a sound that you like, you know, when you turn around and walk back to get the balls or get a sip of water on the break and you just do that or you make a little sound or say your mantra, your body, that neural network is already there and your body is getting the benefit from it without having to like stop and do the whole thing, which you're not really going to do that on the court. <laughs> it, it, it is, you know, it's tough sometimes. I know I have actually had a um, shoulder injury uh, recently, a little bit, a small tear in my shoulder and I went to see the PT and I admit I've not been very compliant with the PT exercises. And some people I think are more disciplined than others in that way. And so I wanted to ask you about that. Like, could you share your thoughts on the reality of the challenges that some individuals face when they're trying to become more mindful and they're trying to do mental exercises and, and, and maybe taking on yoga and life force yoga practices and that thing. It seems to me, and I've seen with my PT that sometimes you can have the best of intentions. You want to change so badly. You want to do it, but yet you can sometimes falter. And Absolutely. I wanted to hear your, your feedback about that and what it takes to, to really make these changes and, and incorporate mindfulness into your life and into your tennis game. Well, you know, one of the things that I say all the time in my work with clients who are, who are specifically wanting to focus on using these techniques for their life, whether it's an athlete or professional or just somebody who's on their own journey, is it's not the leaving, it's the coming back. So we're going to leave these practices all the time. We're going to leave doing the things we know that are good for us, you know, we're going to leave them. We're always leaving them. And, but at some point we're going to come back. So it's just no, first of all, it's, so it's letting yourself off the hook. It's a paradox because people think if I let myself off the hook, I'm never going to come back. <laughs> right. Most people, most people are. Um, and it's knowing how to get back. So knowing what works for me, the smaller, the better. So knowing if I just start drinking water in the morning, I'm 
probably going to set myself up to do some better things during the day. Or if I just do that, that's fine. Um, so it's knowing all the things that work for you and how to get back and giving yourself a little bit of grace. Giving yourself grace. And I will say I did do some PT exercises this morning. So I'm, <laughs> I came back. I, I'm back. Um, but um, yeah, it's it, it's it's not sometimes so easy uh, as the old saying goes, you know, saying it sometimes is easier than doing it, you know. It's um, not easy. And let the wins matter. So like when you do even the smaller thing, instead of beating yourself up and saying, I should have done that a week ago, or if I'd done that, I wouldn't have gotten injured or, I, you know, I don't get a high five for doing that. High five yourself for the wins because that that's another positive deposit. Yes. You know? and then you feel good about it and you might, do, do another small thing. Exactly. Exactly. I love to hear that. It's, yeah, that pause, it's the going back and, and realizing that we all falter, we all fail, we're all works in progress. And especially when it comes to the tennis game, that's one thing that I've said and related to yoga. I feel tennis is a sport that is a practice like yoga. For me, it is at least. I feel it's a game that's lifelong. You know, you can play it into your 80s. Literally, there's a woman, I don't know if you've heard of her in Tarboro, North Carolina, who is still playing USTA in her 80s. But, you know, Looking at tennis in your game like it's a practice, like the practice of yoga, constant improvement and yeah. realizing that you are going to stop and uh, start sometimes again yeah. in life, depending on what we have going on. And speaking of that, I understand that you've recently reconnected you know, with the game and that you're playing again. And um, I wanted to ask you about that and uh, ask if, um, you know, if you think that tennis as a sport, maybe like or unlike other sports offers mental health benefits and and tell us you know why you've returned uh to the game and, and what why you love love the game of tennis um I think it goes back to what we started talking about at the very beginning I um love to have fun I love to be outside and I love to be moving you know um we we grew up climbing trees and sledding down the hill and riding our bike to school. And, you know, it was, yes, the movement and the connections and you were saying the friendship. And so friendship and you feel that movement and those connections are positive for mental health as a psychotherapist. Directly correlated to your mental health. Think about COVID. You know, one of the things that we're, you hear people talking about is the level of isolation that you're having and how that's impacting your mental health. That is, that's been a huge come to the forefront during this time. Yeah. And we've been so lucky that tennis has been a sport that can be played at a social distance and has been allowing that social interaction and the physical activity. Yeah. So I feel it's, it's a blessing. saving people in so many ways. So um, I just want to um, ask you a few fun questions. Uh, now, I know we've been delving into some deep topics, uh, sort of heavy, you know, anxiety and uh, trauma, but I feel it was important, I think, and I hope our listeners will agree to to understand how some of the techniques that you use in your practice can, can be applied on the court and can actually Im- improve individuals tennis games. I don't think necessarily everybody would associate trauma and anxiety with tennis, but it's it's about life and who you are off the court is also who you are on the court, right? 
So this has just been really enlightening. And um, to take it to just a lighter, more fun uh, couple of final questions here, I want to ask, what is your favorite tennis stroke? I was thinking about this. (laughs) You know, I have to say, I love a good forehand. I I mean, it might be so vanilla, but... (laughs) When you hit that forehand just right, you're cross court or down the line, also your stance is so open in a forehand. There's a sense of just, I don't know, everything feels right when when that dials in to me. That's that's great. I actually prefer my backhand. I actually have a two-handed forehand. So it's something my forehand for me is a little bit of uh, the little nagging thing that I, I that I work on. But um, my backhand is, is my favorite. So that's interesting though, you're a forehand girl. Um, let's see. I wanted to also ask, besides your mom, um, who I, I'm sure was a favorite uh, ladies player for you back in the day um I wanted to ask who was your favorite ladies professional player back in the late 70s and early 80s and who is your favorite female tennis pro player today so back in the 70s and 80s uh your your listeners who have who were watching tennis during that time might remember that was a real change in tennis we went from my my clear memory is watching uh, Chris Everett, she was Chris Everett then, play Martina Navratilova. And if that was a visual and energetic, just clear understanding of how the game changed right there watching those two women play, um, you know, the athleticism, what they wore, how they played, the strength. It, you could really see the, the field of tennis opening up right right there. Yes, that, I agree. Mm-hmm. It was just, and I don't think I knew it then, but when I reflect back on it, I can see how memorable that was. It really was. Uh, similarly, the, those two for me, just the rivalry and those matches. I have so many memories, uh, you know, watching Wimbledon and just being glued to the TV screens. And, um, oh, yeah, lo- loved both of them. So it's sort of hard to pick a favorite. What about today um, on the tour? Do you have a favorite female or a couple? You know, I don't, I don't. Maybe this is something I need to pay more attention to. I feel like I have watched more men's tennis than women's tennis over the past few years. Okay. So I don't don't really know why that is. I need to maybe think about that. Um, Maybe it's because there's such a legacy going on in men's tennis right now. True. Um, They have the, yes, the three, the big three, the the Robert and Novak. Yeah. And that has pulled me along much more I think than the ladies the women's tennis but I mean of course I'm a classic you know Venus and Serena right during the, watching them come onto the scene and watching the scene happen with them and then um you know they're how their lives have unfolded I, I could watch the, I could watch Serena play all day long <laughs> yes I know they've really yeah but it's, it's been it's been really, it's almost like a renaissance period, so to speak, between the 70s up until today, I feel like it's just been 
fabulous time to be alive playing tennis and watching tennis. So I think we're lucky, right? Starting with our moms. And and I feel that we have, that has also been a blessing in talking about the the friendships and the fact that our mothers are still friends, of course, today and and the, the good times that they had. And so I just feel like, you know, that's part of why I love, love the game. It's just, it's always been fun ever since I was young and it, it still is fun. And this has been fun to connect with you in, in, on the podcast. And so I want to thank you, Alice, for taking the time. Um, it's really, again, been a pleasure to talk with you about the intersection of psychotherapy and tennis. Um, I know our listeners, if they want to learn more about you and your work and, and all that you're doing, they can visit www dot alicewellens.com a-l-y-c-e-w-e-l-l-o-n-s.com that's correct is that that's the it. best everything's on there okay and um with that i want to wish you a great start to 2021 it's hard to believe we're here at the end of january almost and all the best for the rest of the year and now that you're back on the tennis courts uh i would I hope we can maybe hit a few balls before the year. I think that's our next order of business, Ruth, is to meet each other on the tennis, tennis court at some point. If, if you bring your patience. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And I'll watch out for your forehands and you can watch out for my backhand. Right? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And good luck to all your listeners. Keep playing. And, and as number one, enjoy the game. And that's a wrap. If you liked listening to this episode, don't miss visiting our website, love-lovetennis.com to check out more episodes and more content about all things tennis because Love Love Tennis is where tennis talk starts.